Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. This morning, we're traveling with our Israelite ancestors in the wilderness, and it is thirsty in the desert. We've seen with our own eyes the splitting of the Red Sea, the death of Pharaoh's army on the seashore, and our walk to freedom. We remember the ten plagues and all the other signs and wonders Moses did in front of Pharaoh in Egypt. We are breathing free air for the first time after the Egyptians enslaved us and tried to eliminate us. And we're in the wilderness. Get used to it. We will be here for some time. It doesn't actually take 40 years to go from Egypt to the border of the land of Canaan. It's only about 200 kilometers. If you're a good hiker, you could do it in 10 days. But if you look at reconstructions of the Israelites' journey, they wander around the wilderness in circles for 40 years, a whole generation. There are jokes about this, just like there are jokes about everything. If we'd have had women leading, they wouldn't have stayed lost. They'd have stopped and asked directions. Others joke, it's amazing to wander around 40 years and land in the one place in the wilderness in the Middle East where there is no oil. That was hard to do. Jews and Christians alike see in the wilderness wandering a glimpse of our life with God. It's actually difficult, frustrating. There's repetition. It's not clear we know where we're going. And we groan under that difficulty. But our Jewish elder siblings also remember the wilderness with a kind of nostalgia. Remember when we were out under the stars and it was just us and God and God provided and everyone was equal. And so Jewish people remember the wilderness with the festival of the booths every year. They build little shacks and sleep out in them to remember that time when God provided and everyone was equal. Plus, it's fun camping out, right? Now, it's true for us Christians, too. We are also in the wilderness. We're in between the redemption of the Red Sea, which is our baptism, our confession of faith in Jesus Christ, and the promised land, which is not yet. And in the meantime, we wander. And what do we do while we wander? We complain. The first thing the Israelites do in the wilderness The first thing is complain. The Hebrew is more like they complained bad. Now remember, they've seen miracles with their own eyes. The splitting of the sea, the destruction of the world's greatest army, and their first thought is, how do I get a sandwich? It's almost noon. I'm hungry. Did anybody pack any food? I asked some Jewish friends how they interpret the complaining in the wilderness tradition And they looked at each other, and they looked at me, and they said, typical. That's us human beings. We complain. Bad. 
Sure, God, I know you sprang us from freedom, gave us all of this freedom, but it's noon and I'm hungry. What do we have for lunch? Or in the Bible's words, remember when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. Remember when the steaks were free and nobody went hungry. In another version of this story in the book of Numbers, they complain even better or worse, depending on your position. We remember the fish we ate for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. That's quite a salad bar. And that's some high-quality complaining. I would like all of us to raise the quality of our complaining around here directly, please. Now, they remember badly. There were no free steaks in slavery in Egypt. There was no open bar during the genocide. And that's not even the best of their complaining. Here's the best. I'm sorry, I keep saying their complaining. I mean our complaining. Here's the best of our complaining. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to the wilderness to kill us? Their bodies may have left slavery in Egypt, but their minds, their imaginations have not. This is like prisoners released from a long prison term who suddenly find the endless possibilities terrifying, petrifying, rather than freeing. Or like me when I'm in the cereal aisle in the grocery store. What? Why are there so many things? Or more seriously, it's like historically mistreated people who come to believe their oppressors' statements about them, whether black or indigenous or gay. Nelson Mandela talked about the first time he got on a plane and saw it was a black pilot, and he was afraid. And he realized, that's how much racism they have poisoned me with. We all have to get free, and it takes some time. In our anthem, we sang about the Jordan River. That's the body of water the Israelites will cross in 40 years into the Promised Land. It's still there today. Some of you are going to travel to see it on pilgrimage soon. But in the church's imagination... The Jordan is any significant transition. You cross over it at death, or you can cross over it when you go from death to life in baptism. Any spiritual awakening can be a crossing of one of these bodies of water. The spiritual comes from the wisdom of the black church. They seem like innocent little Bible songs to oppressors, but to those who are crushed, they're revolutionary marches for free people. Sing them long enough, maybe for 40 years, and eventually your imagination catches up with your body's freedom. There's an old joke among us preachers, not actually that funny, but it tells the truth. The joke is that every church has a back to Egypt committee, a group whose job is to remind everyone how great things used to be and how bad things are now by comparison back to Egypt. A friend was telling this joke in a grand parish with a great history, and someone came right up to him and said, you didn't know this, but this morning you were preaching in Cairo, back to Egypt. Now, this isn't just lay people. I was with a group of clergy once. We were listening to a group of older clergy talking about how great ministry was in their day, how bad it is now. And me and the younger ones looked at each other and said, yeah, and thanks for handing us a broken down, decrepit wreck of a denomination back when things were great. Now, it's not just church or clergy or laity. It's people. 
you can fill in your variety of complaining here. We complain because we're afraid, not of change, but of loss. It's not change, it's loss that we're afraid of. So we remember the past badly, and we don't trust God for the future. Typical. But in this story, God is trustworthy. And in our lives, God is trustworthy. So the people complain bad, and God what? Strikes them down? Sends a thunderbolt? No. God sends bread. In the plagues, there were cloudbursts of frogs and locusts and hail. This time, there's a downpour of bread. In Exodus' words, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. God is so patient with us. When we whine, when we internalize our oppression, when we're hungry, God knows we get cranky. We become four-year-olds in those moments. And God feeds us, provides for us when we whine. Sometimes when you come forward for communion and I hand you that wafer, I'm not sure it's bread. I am sure it's Jesus. But here's one thing I say to you, manna from heaven. God always provides. What is manna? The Hebrew words are manu, which means what is it? It lands on the ground. The people say, what is it? And God says, that's what it's called. You're going to be eating what is it for the next 40 years. The part of the U.S. I come from, the South, we eat grits. This is basically a cornmeal goo with unhealthy amounts of butter and salt. It doesn't really taste like anything, so it's a good filler food, and it'll keep poor people alive for a long time. A friend of mine was new to the South. A diner offered him grits. He wanted to be brave, so he said, I think I'll just try one grit, please. Nope. They come in heaps. And they'll keep people alive a long time. Now we serve them in fancy restaurants with things like scallops and bacon. Jay Lynn and I, the first date we ever went out on, we had shrimp and grits. And that so far has worked out quite well. Thank you, Lord. But imagine we're free from slavery. We're hungry. God rains down grits from heaven. And y'all Canadians say, what is it? And God says, it's all you're eating for the next 40 years we would have some complaining Canadians on our hands, I think. We had magnificent chili last week. On Monday, I had leftover chili. On Tuesday, I had leftover chili. On Wednesday, I was ready to swear off chili for the rest of my life. No matter how good a food is, you get tired of it. No wonder, complaints. I do wonder, though, about a time when God has provided food for you. When you were hungry, and didn't know where it was going to come from, and then there was provision, and you gave thanks. I'm always struck when I travel how frail we creatures are, how often we have to eat. As soon as one meal is over, you got to plan for the next one, don't we? Napoleon said an army marches on its stomach. Feed the soldiers, they'll march to hell with you and back. Don't feed them, and war's over, folks. In our Tuesday Bible study, one of our online participants told about the famous ice storm in Montreal in the late 80s, how there was one block that mysteriously never lost electricity. 
And so others in Montreal brought their impossible-to-freeze meat, and they all cooked it with strangers who became friends. And community broke out where there had only been cold and fear. At a church I served once, we had a sunrise Easter service. Pastor Lori informs me I am welcome to host a sunrise Easter service. If I wish, she'll be sleeping until 9.15, as any sane person would do. Anyway, we had this Easter sunrise service. The year before, we had five people come, so I prepared for five or ten, and for reasons I still don't know, 60 or 70 showed up this time. And I looked at that little dinner roll, and I asked God to make it be enough, and it was. We just tore off smaller pieces and all got a taste of Jesus. Any of you Tolkien fans? You know the Lambus bread that the elves make? You just eat one bite of it and it'll fill you up all day? That's just manna, Tolkien, footnoting, Exodus. Now, the manna is a modest little miracle. There's actually a natural explanation for it. There's a certain kind of lice that eats the fruit of the tamarisk tree in the Sinai Desert and excretes out something yellowish, whitish that tastes sweet and has a lot of carbohydrates in it. And people there still gather it, beat it, eat it, and call it manna. There you are, God's provision, lice poo. Doesn't seem like much of a miracle at all, does it? But then again, think of the last bite of food you had. It's probably cereal for a lot of us, jam and bread for a lot of us, bacon if you have a particularly loving spouse this morning. Isn't it amazing that we can grow things in the ground, harvest them, beat them, and bake it into bread? Isn't it amazing that there's fruit for jam? Incredible that animals taste like that. Sorry, vegetarians, this morning wasn't great for you, I realize. Every bite of food is a miracle. We just stop noticing because it's all shielded by our grocery stores and our agribusiness. But if we were paying attention, we would all be amazed all the time. This is why religious people pray before eating. We should probably pray after eating, before every bite, after every bite, because food is always a modest miracle. Here's the more properly miraculous part. There's a radical egalitarianism in the manna story. Moses says, everyone gather just enough, not too much, not too little. Some gather more because they want to be sure there'll be enough. But when they measure it, they don't have too much, they have just enough. Some aren't strong enough to gather enough, but when they measure it, God has provided the extra. Everyone has the exact same amount. And God is the great leveler. Manna is a dangerously anti-capitalist story. You're not rewarded for more work. You're not punished for less work. Do you remember in the book of Acts how the early Christians sold all their possessions and had everything in common? A friend of mine calls this the church's 10-minute hippie phase. In minute 11, they realized, yeah, I kind of like my ensuite, to be honest with you. What that story is remembering is the manna, when there was just enough for everyone, not too much, not too little. There are no cupboards in the wilderness, no pantries in the early church. Just trust that God will provide enough tomorrow and the next day and the next day forever.
There's a children's book set in World War II that I appreciate. It's about how some parents would soothe their children back to sleep during World War II in Europe by letting them sleep with a loaf of bread. That way, the children knew the next day they wouldn't go hungry because they had bread in their hands. The book is called Sleeping with Bread. Jesus teaches us in his prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But another good translation of that is give us today our bread for tomorrow. It's remembering the manna tradition. Give us just enough, not too much, so that we will rely on you. There's a wonderful older movie called Babette's Feast. It's about a strict conservative Protestant sect in Denmark in the 19th century where they think pleasure is bad. No one show any pleasure. And a new cook comes from Paris fleeing trouble, and they fall in love with her cooking, and she wins the lottery. Very non-strict Protestant sort of thing to do. And she asks them, can I throw you a feast as a farewell thank you? Spends all her lottery winnings on it. She brings all the finest ingredients from Paris. They look in there and wonder what kind of witch's brew she's conjuring up. And then they sit down to eat, and their pleasure sensors explode. But they're not allowed to show it, because pleasure is bad. So they try and keep their faces blank, and their minds are doing that. Meanwhile, there's a guest who's a soldier, not part of their faith, and he keeps looking around and saying, is no one else tasting what I'm tasting? This is the best food I've ever had. I want to dance a jig and say hallelujah and propose marriage to whoever is cooking this thing for us. Two different ways of eating. Faith has its renunciations. We do teach self-denial and fasting. We have Lent coming up and Ash Wednesday. We abstain from pleasures that our neighbors may think are normal. But we also teach feasting, extravagance in mealtimes, because we look forward to a banquet that will never end in God's presence, where the poor eat first, and even the scraps the rest of us get are more than enough. Where I'm from, we say two silly things when food is extra good. We'll say, this is so good, it'll make you want to throw rocks at your mama. What, y'all don't say that in Canada? That's weird. Or if we want to ratchet it up a bit, we'll say, this is so good, it'll make you smack your grandma. <laughs> Utterly ridiculous. That's the point. One day, we will feast. We will feast. There will be no smacking, no throwing rocks, just delight. How do we organize our lives in light of that coming banquet now? There's more here. There's always more with God. On the sixth day, the people are to gather twice as much. Try and do that normally, and it'll miraculously level off, and you won't have too much. But the day before the Sabbath, everyone get twice as much. Then on the Sabbath, no manna. Some go out and try and gather on the Sabbath, and they find nothing. Nobody works on the Sabbath, not even the animals, not even the poorest. All of us work the same. Sabbath is enforced rest. See, in Egypt, there was no Sabbath in the economy. Slavery is based on treating people as objects or animals. And so to work as free people folds rest into the rhythm of work. In fact, they have to do so. Now, this is before the Ten Commandments, where observing the Sabbath is commanded. Here, the way God provides bread makes Sabbath non-optional. 
In Protestant churches like ours, we fought to have legislatures make everyone keep the Sabbath. And centuries had that work in Protestant countries like Britain or Canada or Switzerland or the Netherlands or Scandinavia until it didn't anymore. By the 50s and 60s, businesses had more power than the church and they wanted to open. And nobody could stop it now. Kids wanted to play in sports leagues. And then Protestant churches just sort of gave up on the Sabbath. As if to say, okay, we can't get the legislature to make you do it, so we're just going to forget about it altogether. But maybe it was a mistake to enforce non-activity on the Sabbath. Nobody have any fun. Nowhere. Maybe instead we should have focused on delight. No work, sure, but also street parties and games and parades and festivals. I don't blame any of us for throwing off legally enforced glumness. I was reading a memoir of the widow of one of our great preachers here, Andy Lawson, who pastored here for 25 years, mid-century. And Dot Lawson talked about how he grew a church in Calgary during the war. And she said, now, admittedly, there was rationing. We didn't have TV yet. Nothing was open. There was nothing to do. All Andy had to do was preach better than the Presbyterians. And the church was full. No competition. Now there's infinite competition, 24-7. Some of you are listening to me and also on your phones. I know, because I do it too. Do you see why the Back to Egypt committee is wrong? The church might have been more full once, but there were no other options. No credit for that. Now our Jewish neighbors know something about keeping the Sabbath without asking the legislature to make everyone do it. It's often said that more than the Jews keeping the Sabbath, the Sabbath keeps the Jews. That Sabbath observance has kept that people distinct and alive and prosperous despite all their enemies all these millennia. There are Jewish businesses that if you go online to shop online there, they'll give you a screen on the Sabbath that says, nope, we're not taking your money today. Come back tomorrow. At Mount Sinai Hospital here in Toronto, if you try and get on the elevator on Saturday, Shabbat, all the buttons are pressed because operating machinery is work. They're not going to let anybody do it that day. I took my class to a synagogue in Vancouver, and while we waited in line for food afterwards, someone poured us all schnapps. No one's working today. No one's going to be good for anything except a nap this afternoon. Friends, we Protestants gave the world the Protestant work ethic. That birthed capitalism, democracy, modernity. You're welcome, world. Here's the thing the Protestant work ethic is no good at. Resting. We feel like we have to be productive all the time. In other words, we don't trust God to provide for us when we're not working. So we need to relearn that from people who will never forget it. Oh, and if you're thinking of working this afternoon, not allowed. <laughs> Neither is it for anyone who works for you. Go for a walk. Take a nap. Love someone in your household. Call up someone you haven't talked to in a while. Don't scroll your phone. That does not count as rest. By the way, just for the record, the Super Bowl is fine. <clears throat> now, if the manna tradition makes you nervous, fear not. The manna ends when the people get to the promised land. Then they have to grow their own food. They take some of the manna, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord, so they will always remember how God provided food. It's okay to save 
and invest and plan for the future. I see some of the finance committee people out there who were nervous until now. We don't live in the wilderness now. We also have to work. In fact, we always had to work. In the wilderness, the people didn't just go out from their tents and open their mouths and wait for God to drop food in. They had to gather it and beat it and bake it. There is always work to be done as well as rest. But there remains this radical memory of manna. This food where you can't have too much, God will take it away if you try. You can't have too little, God will give you more if you don't have the strength. This is true of other things as well. Some people say when we talk about money in church, we usually talk about stewardship, when maybe we should talk about manna, God providing just enough, not too much, not too little. That'd be a different conversation, wouldn't it? When I teach preaching, I tell students to preach Sunday as if they are going to die on Monday. Don't hold anything back. Give them the best thing you have and trust that God will replenish what you have to say the next week. I wonder how this would work in your life, in your work, in your household. What is something that you need to spend up entirely and trust that God will always provide more? Where are you holding back? Because the Christian gospel is like manna. You can't have the gospel of Jesus Christ without giving it away as fast as you can. If you try and keep the gospel for yourself, it rots. It spoils. But if you give it away, God gives you more grace back. And that's probably true of other things, too, that we tend to try to hoard, like money and time and kindness and food. It's probably true of everything that matters. Did I say probably? I don't mean probably. Let us pray. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Better yet, provide, Lord. We are in need. We trust in you. Help us to trust you more. Amen.